Bibles, you can go to James chapter 1. Since we're starting Sunday morning service, I'm pushing the Galatians series to Sundays. And we're going to look at James on, on Wednesday. So. But in... I've done this the first part of James, and it's been posted online, and it was called Faith Through the Storm. And James gave us a, a very practical advice on, on how to approach life as we go through tough times. In this message, it's called Faith Under Fire, and we're going to take another look at the aspect of life that we all deal with, and that's temptation. Because everybody's tempted. Everybody has been tempted. Even Jesus was tempted, right? He was tempted by... The devil himself. So he had a pretty rough for 40 days and 40 nights getting tempted in the wilderness. But we all face this, and temptation in of itself is not sin. Like you can be tempted all day long and all night long. It's when you cross the line of temptation and you act on it. That's when it becomes the sin. But what, what determines our success in life is how we deal with this temptation. What how, how, how our spiritual life is affected is how we handle the temptation that comes at us. So in James chapter 1, starting at verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, for he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, let it minister to us. Let it open up our hearts and open up our minds and ears so that it, it can be applied to our life throughout every day, Lord. Father, don't let your word return void. Just help us to, to be better representations of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when it comes to temptation, there, there are promises in, in God's Word and from God Himself. Because in verse 12, James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised those who love him. Everyone loves a reward, right? Everybody loves that. There's a story about two kids who are playing in a creek and they found $100,000 in the creek. So they did the right thing and they took it and they turned it in and the police told them, you know, if no one claims it and it's not stolen property, you can have it back. And I'm pretty sure those boys were hoping no one claimed that money because I would have been hoping no one claimed that money too. Right? $100,000 would do some good things. But here's the thing, God promises a reward for a particular kind of person. The ones who endures temptation gets the, gets the reward. Now that was the temptation there for the boys just to take the money and run, right? Like put yourself in their shoes. If you found $100,000 in, in the creek, what would you do with it? Would you take it and run? <laughs> would you take it and run? Would you hide it? Or, or would you turn it in to the police? Mm -hmm. the right thing the right thing to do is turn it in right 
that's the temptation that we face. Like, do I keep it? Do I, do I hide it? Or do I turn it in? See, the word endure here means to persevere or to stand firm or hold your ground. Do you remember the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? About how they were facing the fire. The king made a golden image and everyone was to worship it, but those three men held their ground under fire, literally. Because they got cast in that fiery furnace and it was heated up more than it usually is. And they didn't even flinch. The temptation was bow down before this and make this your God and bow down before this idol, but they served the one true God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we bowing down to idols or are we going to bow down before the one true God? Because those temptations come at us too. Everything is buying for our attention. We got so many voices clamoring around us nowadays. You got social media, you've got news media, you've got people around you, you got friends, you got family. Everybody is, is fighting for your attention. And God is just over there in the corner, like, you got to choose me. Like, you have to make this decision. You can't give in to the temptation to let all these other voices control you or influence your life. You have to let God influence your life and His Word because if you do that, everything else in life works itself out. I figured that out the hard way. Could have done it the easy way and just listened to God's Word, but I, I decided I was going to take my life and do what I wanted to do with it, how I wanted to do it. And it took God smacking me in the face pretty much and said, hey, will you pay attention now? Because this way is easier than any other way in the world. The ways of the world, yeah, they're kind of easy when it comes to, to pleasure because they'll give you your, your momentary pleasure. But we're not living for momentary things. We're living for eternity, right? And what we do here echoes throughout eternity. That's the This is the kind of endurance that this word is talking about when, when we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and our life when it comes to temptations. It's describing that person who, who stands their ground when they're being tempted. And it also talks about the person being approved, right? God has to approve of us. So the word here to be tested is to be found genuine. And God is saying, like, when you're tested, are you genuine in your faith? Or are you just a bunch of talk? Because here's the thing about our faith. A lot of people have a profession of it. They profess Christianity. They profess the faith, but they don't have a real possession of it. So they'll profess it, but they won't really take hold of it. They're the ones who give in to temptation. They're the ones who straddle the fence. Like one day I'm a Christian, one day I'm not a Christian. They're the ones who go out and live like the world, but on Sunday they're lifting hands and raising hallelujah. <laughs> like you can't do both. You have to think, like imagine like we're at Walmart or somewhere and and you get to the checkout and they tell you that your total is going to be like $48 and, and you give it to them, you give her a 50 or whatever, she gives you the change and you, and you walk back, you walk away a few steps and you realize she gave you $100 back. So you made a profit. <laughs> What are you going to do? And I, I hate that all this, all these illustrations have to do with money because that's the one thing that tempts us the most is money. Jesus even made it a point to say, like, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love God or you're going to love money. Now, loving, like, having money, being rich, is not in of itself a sin. You know, when, when Jesus says, like, hey, it's easier for the rich man to or for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not saying that because the rich man is rich that it's hard for him to get in. 
is saying that he has a hard time of letting go of his possessions in order to take hold of what God has for him. So we might look at this and like, well, this woman gave me $100 back when she was only supposed to give me like $8. We can look at that and be like, well, the Lord bless me. I am blessed and highly favored because look what God did. We can look at it that way or we can look at it the Christian way and say, you know what? This isn't right. You got those super spiritual Christians who'll be like, well, I'll just pay a tithe off of it. It'll be all right. <laughs> God bless me anyway. But your decisions determine whether you're being tested, if you're being found genuine or not. You have to ask yourself, who are you when no one is looking? Because that's what true character is. Who are you when no one is looking? So what is the reward? James tells us that the, the reward is the crown of life. And in fact, Jesus' Jesus's purpose in coming here was to bring us to life, right? He said, you were dead in your sins and I want to bring you to life. I want to bring you not just to life, but to eternal life. John 10.10 10 puts it this way. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. So how do we get this abundant life that Jesus wants us to have? One, he has to draw us to himself, right? He has to draw us to himself, and, and it's the reward of those who are tested in the fires of temptation, and they're found to be the genuine article, like found to be the genuine thing, the genuine Christian. So if we look at these original, the, the original language of the New Testament, which is in Greek, you have to discover then that, that you didn't use a comma to separate words for test or tempt. They kind of meant the same thing, even though we have separate words in English, right? Like we have test and we have tempt, but they didn't have that. It all meant one thing. But if you think about it, it, it kind of does make sense. So it's the opposite. It's the two opposites of the same coin. So no matter how you look at it, whether you're being tested or you're being tempted, you can't look at it as, well, God is mad at me, so I'm going through this. You have to look at it as, am I who I say I am? Am I who I claim to be? Every temptation in of itself is a test. And we have to realize that every test brings its own temptations. Why do we get tested, though? I've asked God that so many times, and the only answer that I can come up with is in His Word, that is, if your faith is not tested, it's not genuine faith. If that's the only reason that I can come up with is why we, have, why we face temptation is because he has to prove us to, to say we are who we say we are. And here's the thing. The devil is not going to let one opportunity slide by him to tempt us. Like that is his goal is to tempt us and, and, and to make us fail and fall so that he can basically look at God and be like, I told you. I told you they wouldn't real. I told you they didn't love you. But God is on our side when it comes to this. If we are His children, He is on our side. He wants us to pass the test. You know, when I was a kid, I went to school, and throughout the year, the teacher would, would set tests for us. Like we had the SAT, we had like random spelling tests, we had all these. Like it was like every two days we had a test for some reason. And I hated it. But they wanted us to pass the test, and, and I don't think any of the any of the teachers there were hoping that the students were going to fail. Because speaking in the teacher sense, if all the students failed, it's a bad teacher, right? 
unless you're probably one of those really obnoxious kids that just got on everybody's nerves and they're like, please fail. But, but God wants us to pass the test just like the teachers wanted us to pass the test. God is the same and He wants the best for our life. But the best for our life has to line up with His will. you got so many people that will pray and ask God for abundant and exuberant and outlandish things thinking that they read this one Bible verse that just because it says, ask in my name and I'm going to give it to you, that that's how it works. But everything we ask for has to be within the will of God because if it's not, we're not going to get it. Just like, just like how you refine metal or you refine silver, you, you put it in the fire, right? To make it stronger, to make it harder, to make it last longer, to make it sharper. But God wants us to pass the test because we have an enemy. And what, what is our weapon here? It, it's the Word of God, right? Like In Ephesians 6, it tells us that we have the armor of God and it is, it is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, in having an enemy, we have to realize that we can't fight how we would fight here on earth. Like we can't just go up to the devil and punch him in the face or have a sword fight with him. And if that was the case, I'm pretty sure I'd lose. Because he's probably bigger than I am. And stronger and faster and smarter because he's been around a lot longer than I have. But he doesn't have to destroy us with earthly weapons. All he has to do is get us to give in. That's all he has to do is just tempt us just a little bit just to give in, just to start doubting and, and to start questioning. we got to go back to John 10.10 10 because it, it gives us Jesus' mission statement and it gives us the devil's mission statement, right? The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. That is what the devil is all about. Steal, kill, and destroy. And you can probably throw in lie in there too because he's a liar, right? So that is the devil's mission. That is the, the devil's sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. What is he stealing from? What is he killing? And, and who's he trying to destroy? God's people. Why? Because after the fall, we became God's favorite creation. And I think the, the main reason, like he, I can't really back this up biblically, but like from my interpretation of it, angels were created for the sole purpose of worship. Like that is what they do. You read Revelation, you read Daniel or Ezekiel, like angels are created to worship. That's all they do. Around the throne, holy, holy, holy. We have a choice to worship or not. I think the fall of Lucifer was more of a, I don't get a choice, but also I think I can do a better job at being God than you are. That resulted in the war and Michael throwing him out of heaven. And now he's like, well, now I'm going to go after your kids. Just like any good thief or any good destroyer would, how do you hurt? How do you hurt somebody? You go after their children. Jesus' mission statement is that I have come that they may have life and they have life more abundantly. So he wants you to live and to prosper, not, not to be rich and healthy and all that stuff, but to live and to prosper so you will have eternity with him in the kingdom of God. The devil, he wants to take that from you. And he will, it's pretty clear, right? God wants to give you life. The devil wants to kill you. Like, it's pretty clear. But, but when we give into temptation, we're allowing the devil to fulfill his mission statement. Like we're allowing the devil to do what the devil does. James 1.13, here's the thing about temptation. It's easy to make excuses. 
James 1.13 says, let, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. To understand what James is getting at here, in essence, James is describing a person who's blaming God for their sins. It is not God's fault that people sin. That is in our nature. That's what we do. That's kind of like what we were created for. Like we, we sin by nature. Why do we sin? Because of the fall. That's in Genesis chapter 3. Temptation entered the world through Adam and Eve. Through one man's sin, the world was corrupted. But through Jesus, one, through one man, everybody is, that is drawn to him is, is righteous. So the reasoning goes like kind of like this. The, the sinner is saying, hey, don't blame me. It's not my fault that I'm like this. Or they might say, well, God created me this way. Or the, the, my, my favorite one is, well, only God can judge me. Well, that should scare the hell out of you. Literally. If God can judge you, if God is the only one that you think can judge you, I would be scared. Because God is the one who can, can destroy both the soul and the body in hell, right? So why would I be afraid of man or try to impress man? Like... I don't get that. People have it tattooed on them and they say it. Well, who are you to judge me because only God can judge me? Like, yeah, that should scare you. That, that should really scare you. Like, just let me live my life. Who are you to judge? Here's the thing. If, if it's another Christian brother or sister, we have every right in the world to judge. We, we are to judge with righteous judgment. And our judgment is not saying, well, how dare you or, or to try to shame them. Our judgment is saying, hey, you're doing this and it's taking you down the path of destruction. Why don't you stop doing that so you can get back on the narrow path? Because it's narrow for a reason. Not a lot of people are going to go down and not a lot of people are, 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 are going to accept the gospel of Jesus. God, God didn't make us this way. When, when He made creation to begin with, it was all perfect. Can you imagine what it was like to be Adam and Eve before the garden? Before the fall in the garden, how everything was perfect. There was no sin. There was no evil in the world. It was all peace and harmony with God. Having fellowship with God, seeing God walk in the garden. But man, in his fallen nature, makes every excuse to blame everybody else except themselves. Because they're always looking for an excuse or a way out to say, this isn't my fault. And God says, I know this isn't technically your fault, but it's the nature that you're born with. And if you, if you live in that nature, I can't accept you. I can't come near you because God cannot be in where darkness is. Darkness and light do not go together, right? This reflects actually the, this viewpoint of, of making excuses. It kind of reflects the Jewish understanding of evil. So when God created Adam and Eve, He created them good. In fact, He created them very good. Genesis one thirty one says that this is very good. Then when they sinned and rebelled against God, evil became part of their nature. And, and people might think, well, that's not fair. Since they did it, why am I held accountable for it? I think it was in them to begin with. I think the devil, all he did was just expose what was already there because by nature, humans are arrogant and prideful and Kind of evil, if you really want to think about it. If, if people couldn't have the, the 
the possibility of being evil, there would be no Hitler. Right? I mean, Hitler was a pretty evil dude, right? In the Holocaust, I mean, there's evil people in the world. So when they, when Adam and Eve reproduced, instead of passing on the image of God that He gave them, they passed on what was evil in their nature. The evil part came in as a result of their sin, but the Jewish people believe that God created man with both good and evil. The problem with that belief is it makes God responsible for evil actions. God is not responsible for evil. Does He allow it? Yes. Does He stop it? Sometimes. But is He responsible for it? No. Evil in the world is not His fault. But this tendency to, to blame others for our fall, it all began in the Garden of Eden. So we have to look at it this way. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of any fruit in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. But the devil took, took the form of a serpent and Eve entered that temptation and, he ate, and she ate the fruit. Then she gave it to Adam and he ate too. Which if Adam if had had any sense would have been like, no, nah, I'm good. Because <laughs> here's the thing about it. like Adam wasn't somewhere else in the garden when, when all this was happening. Adam was right there with Eve. Like In Scripture it says she turned and gave it to him. So he was just sitting there like, I, actually probably him being a guy who's probably like, that's a talking snake. That's really cool. Like <laughs> He wasn't paying attention to what she was doing, what she was eating. She's like, is that snake talking? That's pretty cool. And then she just handed him something and he's like, okay. And the next thing you know, he's condemned the whole world. Now here's where it starts to get kind of interesting. Suddenly Adam and Eve knew that they were naked and they, they felt shame. So they tried to hide themselves. And God asked Adam, how did you know you were naked? Who told you that? How do you feel shame? Like Who, who told you that you didn't have any clothes? Who told you to feel this way? Who told you to hide from me? And Adam said, that woman you gave me, <laughs> like right off the bat, that woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit to eat, so it's her fault. Adam blamed two people. He blamed God and he blamed Eve. He blamed Eve because he said, you know, it's her fault, but then he blamed God by saying, that woman you gave me. He's pretty much saying, okay, I admit that I ate it, and that probably wasn't really smart. But it really wasn't my fault because she did it. But you made her. You gave her to me. So ultimately, it's your fault. That's where the excuses started to, to come out. God let that slide temporarily, though. He's like, all right, I'm going to let that slide for a minute. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to put a pin in it because I'm going to come back to you. Then he turned his attention to Eve, and he said, what have you done? And I don't think he asked her that question as in like he didn't know what she just did. I think he asked that question as in do you realize what you just did? Do you realize what you've done? The, the consequences of what you just did. Do you realize what you've actually done? And she pretty much had the same response as Adam did and she looked around for somebody else to blame. And she, she was like, the serpent did it. She couldn't take responsibility for it. She couldn't say it was my fault, but she said it was a serpent. And as they say, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. 
And the serpent was just like, yeah, I did it. I don't even care. This is where the, the blame game began. And ever since the Garden of Eden, people have been looking around for somebody else to blame for their actions or their shortcomings. It's my parents' fault because I don't have this, this, or this. I, I didn't grow up in the right neighborhood. I didn't have the right upbringing. So I'm, I'm doing drugs or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. It's everybody else's fault when, when in reality it's the consequences of your own actions. And when I was doing all, all my drinking and partying and drugs, I looked around at everybody and I blamed everybody else. Until finally I had to look in the mirror and say, this is a decision that I'm making every single day when I wake up. I, I make the decision to do the drugs. I make the decision to drink. I make the decision to hurt people. I, I make these decisions on my own. But here's the thing. Adam and Eve couldn't blame their parents. They couldn't blame their teachers. They couldn't blame anybody. Like, who are they going to blame? God? Adam tried. And the next thing you know, Adam gets cursed. So now you're going to work the ground and you're going to sweat and you're going to work through thorns and thistles and Eve, now you, now childbirth is going to be a pain for you. It was going to be a breeze, but now you done messed up. And to the serpent, he said, now you're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your life and you're going to eat nothing but dust. All because of that. But here's the thing about temptation. Temptation targets the soul. James 1, verse 14 through 15 says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desires are conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The soul has three parts. The, soul, the, the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Right? First, there's, there's always the emotions. Have you ever noticed that when, when emotions are high, we make rash decisions? We make stupid decisions sometimes. James says each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. The devil tailors his temptations to, to match our own natural desires. So what you're being tempted by is what your body is trying to actually do to kill you. You know, there's some things that I believe could, could, that, I, that I could never be tempted in. Like I think I have that strong of will, but I'm wrong. Because I know the devil is, is, even though he is a thief and a destroyer and a killer and a liar, he's also very smart. He's also very wise. I think that, no, I, I could never be tempted in this area because I have no interest in him or I think it's disgusting. But the devil's not going to try to catch me out there. He's going to try, he, he's going to study the things that I like. So he's going to make sports become an idol for me. He's going to make, he can even make my wife and my kids an idol for me to where I neglect God and I neglect everything else and I just focus right on them. He is going to study me and, and He's going to draw me by my own desires. Temptation targets our mind. James also uses the word entice. And that's a word that relates to, to fishing. It's called baiting, like, it's, it's baiting the hook. So when he entices us, he's, he's baiting the hook and he's trying to get our attention. And if we bite on that hook, he will snatch us up. So we have to imagine this. We're going fishing. We, we drop the hook on the side of the boat, but we don't put any bait on it. Do we expect to catch any fish? Maybe, maybe not. But in this instance, that we have to take it this way, that this fish comes up with a hook and he says, hey, do you think I'm stupid? 
There's no bait on this. Why would I, why would I bite this? Why would I go for it? There's nothing to entice me to come over here and to do this. Here's what you do. If you want to catch fish, you actually bait the hook, right? So if the devil wants to entice you, if he wants to entrap you and ensnare you, what is he going to do? He's going to put lustful things in your way. He's going to make you lose your temper some more. He's going to make you do this. He's going to entice you and ensnare you to get your attention to what is actually in you already. This is how temptation works. It it deceives the mind. It works with your heightened emotions and it deceives your mind because there's two purposes of this. That's how the devil operates. The two purposes is so that he can still kill and destroy you from God, but also so that you will eventually lead yourself into death. Because what does Paul tell us in the book of Romans? That the wages of sin is what? Death. That's how the devil operates. He hides the real nature of the temptation. We have to think of a drug addict. I can say this because I've been there. (laughs) We have to think of a drug addict. They're spending everything that they can get, get their hands on or steal so that they can get their fix, right? No matter what they have to steal, no matter what they have to do, if they have to sell their body, no matter what they have to do, the drug dealer or the drug addict is going to get their fix and their life is nothing but misery. It's nothing but misery. It's nothing for pain. It's basically like a living hell if, if you are an addict. They no longer get pleasure out of their drugs, however, because they never get the same high as they did the first time. They're always chasing that first high because eventually your body gets used to it and you can't reach that level that you first got. So you're always chasing that first one. So do you think that if a person could have looked ahead of time and and seen their condition as an addict, like if if 13-year-old me would have met 18-year-old me. 13-year-old me would have been, don't do it. Don't try it. Don't even look at it. Walk away from it. But I can't do that, right? If they could have looked ahead of time, would they have ever taken their first puff? Or would they ever shot up for the first time? Odds are, no. If they could have seen the condition, if they would have seen the loss, if they would have seen the family or the friends or or the money that they would have lost, they probably would have never taken that first drug. But the devil successfully hid the hook and and left the the, the real danger hidden. The devil is really good at his job, but we have to be better at ours. What does that mean? Like we have to Stay in God's Word, being rooted and grounded in our faith. That when we see temptation come, usually when temptation comes, we can kind of see it starting at us. Like it, it's not just like a, sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not like a sneaking thing. It, it, it doesn't just jump up at us. But here's the thing. The devil's temptation to Eve and, and, and to Adam was, hey, if you do this, you're going to be like God. The same thing he wanted. The same thing the devil wanted is what he tempted them with. He says, if you do as I say, you will, you will be like God. So it's the promise of some kind of pleasure or some kind of benefit, and that's where the temptation hits us. 
the goal of the mind is to is to deceive it. If the if Satan can deceive your mind, he will be able to manipulate your emotions, and you will you will bite that hook. Then you might think, well, that's pretty stupid. Why would anybody ever do that? Obviously, you've never been tempted the right way. <laughs> but people think that all the time that they're tempted, and they think no one will ever know. No one's ever going to know that I did this. No one's ever going to know. If I do this just one time, God won't notice it. Like we, we think we can hide from God. We think, well, God's just so busy running this entire thing, this whole universe we got going on. He's not going to notice me if I slip one little bitty time, but he is. Because we got to think the same God who controls the universe still is, he, he's big enough to control the universe, yet small enough to go one-on-one -on -one with you if he needs to. Like that's the God we have. There will become there will be times though when desire when desire has conceived, right? So what does that mean? When when desire conceives sin. That's when we finally just give into it. This is the point where you actually act on the temptation. I've taken time to, to kind of explain the process of temptation, but but don't think that, that when the temptation actually comes, it's, it's going to actually take forever to happen because it can happen in an instant. You can be tempted and make a snap judgment or a snap decision at the wrong time and not actually mean to. So if temptation manages to deceive the mind, engage the emotion, and activate the will, then the result of that is sin. But in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, God has a better plan. You know how everybody says that God will never give you more than you can handle? It's not true. And it's not in the Bible. But this is the verse they get it from, and they twist it to say that God will never give you more than you can handle. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except, except such as is common with man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, this is where people get, God will never give you more than you can handle. But sometimes God will give you more than you can handle so that you rely more on Him and you flee from the temptation and you flee right into His arms. That's where the testing of your genuineness of faith comes in. That when God gives you more than you can handle, what do you run to? Do you run to your own emotions? Do you run to, to friends? Do you run to people? Do you run to drugs or do you run to alcohol? Or do you run to God? That's what the temptation is really going to reveal about you. Is where do you end up? Where do you run to when the temptation happens? Nothing will come your way that you can't handle. Like There's always going to be a way out of it. But if you resist, the devil will flee from you like James 4, 7 says. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So how do we resist the devil? We draw near to God. How do we flee from temptation? We draw near to God. And once you have, have come through that successfully on the other side, that's when you will receive that crown of life. Is the Christian life hard? Yes. 
Like it's not easy. Whoever said it was easy needs to be punched in the mouth, like for real. Because the Christian life is not easy. It comes with temptations. It comes with with persecutions. It comes with losing people. Like Jesus even said, I'm going to turn father against son and daughter against mother. Like the Christian life is not easy, but if you endure, you will receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you will keep us from temptation. Help us to to flee from it and draw nearer to you. Father, help us to to see when 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 we begin to get triggered or or when we begin to enter into to situations or, or get around people who may tempt us to fall, Lord. Father, I pray that you will just guide us through your word, guide us through your spirit, so that we can make the right decisions through everyday life. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.